the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the program. We start a new week. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And this is The Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls, answering your Bible questions, questions about stuff going on in your life, really everything or anything that's on your heart. All you have to do is pick up the phone and dial 210-340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. Numerically, that's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. And as always, if you are driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the call now banner at the top of the screen. You'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Hope you had a great day in church yesterday. We really did. It was Communion Sunday here at our church, and that is a a really, really special time for us and for me personally. So um, just had a really good day, and I pray that was the case with you. Before we get into the questions, um, tomorrow, well, let me start with tonight. Tonight. Um, we'll have our men's and women's youth uh, Bible study starting at 7 o'clock. One difference today is tonight the ladies are going to be doing their women's retreat planning meeting. So it won't be a Bible study, but all the women are invited. Uh, if you have any input or any questions, be a great time to come. It all starts at 7 o'clock with worship. Then everybody kind of separates and goes their own way. Pastor Ken will be teaching the men, Pastor Chris and Pastor Matthew teaching the youth. Okay, let's get to some questions. We'll start with three anonymous questions that have been sent in. Um, Hello, Pastor. I pray you and Mama Paula are doing well. Question, what are your thoughts on using the word master as in referring to a master bedroom? This is a question I honestly never thought I'd get. My goodness. Uh, I was with other Christians over the weekend and playing a game where that word came up and a brother said we should not use master as that invokes racism. I thought it was absolutely ridiculous. As for Christians, we don't see race and should not feel victimized by that word as we are more than conquerors. I'm confident that my Lord Jesus knows my heart and that my saying word doesn't make it racist. Am I off track here? Um, No, Anonymous, you're not off track at all. This silliness. Um, this and I, I almost never use this word, but this crazy wokeness. Um, master bedrooms and master bedrooms forever, and now they're suddenly primaries, and uh, no doubt this comes out of California. Uh, but it's just silliness. I, we, I, we we simply cannot cave in to the culture around us, um, as you indicated in your question. We know our heart. The Lord knows our heart. And we don't have to worry about what anybody else might think. It just It's just absolute silliness. Um, a master bedroom is the same thing as a primary bedroom. Uh, I, I have no idea why they would change it. You know, Paula and I, sometimes we will watch 
um, home not home TV or fixed I, uh, home and garden TV, I guess it's called, and and we'll we'll hear that. Uh, this is the primary, and and I figured that was the reason that they were not saying master, but it is just the height of silliness. So you're not off guard at all. Here's a question anonymously that breaks my heart. This kind of stuff really causes me personal pain. Uh, Hello, Pastor On. My question, and I'm going to read the whole thing. It's a little bit long, but I think it's important. My question is, where is the line with verbal abuse? My husband belittles me when he's angry or things don't go his way. This last argument, I feel, is the last straw. He has told me how stupid I am, how nobody wants me, and constantly asks our children, who is their favorite parent? Our two older children don't talk to us because of a situation that had to do with him, and he will throw that in my face uh, how they don't even want me. Uh, I'm not perfect either. Uh, Once he pulls out that scroll of words on me, I get angry and will act out. I absolutely hate that about me. I haven't done it in a long time. But the last argument, I had it with his comments and attacked back. I just want peace in our home. Pastor Ron, and the reason that we're, um, and the season we're in, I'm sorry, I wanted my husband to understand what I'm going through. So me opening up to him about a situation is what triggered all this for him to make comments and put me down. A little background, we're both involved in church, and this is why I wanted to read the whole thing. A little background, we're both involved in church and saved. Uh, I have reached out for help. Uh, He doesn't seem to care what the pastors have told him. He just throws in my face what they tell me. And to the point where if he doesn't want to put effort into changing, and I hate his verbal abuse, uh, and hate his verbal abuse sin enough to give it up, I want out of this marriage because the arguments are getting worse. We have little ones at home who are hearing, and now he's involving our older son uh, that lives with us at home into these arguments, persuading him that daddy does nothing wrong, only mommy. Please help. Thank you. Now, just reading the question, you can understand why this breaks my heart. Now, I'm going to start with that line, little background, we're both involved in church and saved. I don't see any evidence. If what you are saying about your husband is true, I see absolutely no evidence that he's saved. I don't even know why we would think that. Was he raised in church? Did he somehow get baptized or answer an altar call sometime? But but you see, we're not a Christian because we say we are. Who we are is identified by what we do. That's why James said, faith without works is dead. Show me your faith without works. I'll show you my faith by what I do. And that's not saying we're saved by works. What that is saying is, is works naturally flow from a saved person. Your husband, theoretically, promised God at your wedding that he would cherish you that he would honor you, that he would rightly represent the Lord in your home. And he's doing everything except that. So I have no idea why you would say that or even suggest that he's possibly saved. How would he ever, as a believer, how would he ever explain to Jesus that he's yelling at you, that he's calling you stupid, that he's putting you down in front of the kids? How would he ever explain that to the Lord? And if there's no change, that identifies an unbeliever. And one of my rules of life is when somebody's acting like an unbeliever, I treat them like an unbeliever. And I think that's what you ought to do also. Now, by treating them as an unbeliever, what I mean is First Peter chapter 3. This would be a great question for you to call back or write in and let Paula talk about on Thursday. But an unbelieving um, um, Christian um, or an, I'm sorry, a Christian married to an unbeliever, uh, Peter deals with that in First Peter chapter 3. So read it. See what he says. And change your outlook. If, if you contend that your husband is a believer and there's absolutely no fruit of the Spirit, well, understanding that he's probably not saved at all, This isn't judging his soul. It's just looking at the fruit of his life or the bad fruit in his life. Well, then he becomes the object of your ministry rather than the enemy of your ministry. And that's what 1 Peter 3 says. And I know that because that is the passage of Scripture that literally saved my life because when Paul was praying for me for 13 years, that's where the Lord had her living constantly in 1 Peter chapter 3. 
So let me ask, answer a couple of the questions directly that you asked. Where's the line with verbal abuse? Verbal abuse is not grounds for divorce. It's horrible. Um, your husband's going to answer to God for it. Uh, there will be no excuse. Um, what you do or say uh, doesn't give him the freedom to abuse you verbally. But it's not grounds for divorce. I always tell people that being a jerk is not a grounds for divorce. You married the guy. So I think this is one of those things where you've got to personally get so close to the Lord. He has to become your husband. Again, that's what Paula did. I was verbally abusive. Um, uh, I belittled her. I treated her like she didn't have a brain. But you see, it was her witness, her closeness to Jesus that finally won my heart. And regardless of what you say, he saved. There's no evidence that that's the case. And this is a guy that needs Jesus. I'd also beg you, now I don't know if your husband will do it, but I'd beg you to go to your church and ask for counseling, marriage counseling. Somebody in a position of authority needs to tell him that what he's doing is a sin against God. What you need to do is just pray for him. Now, I also need to talk to you. You said that you hate it about you, that you get angry and act out. There's no excuse for you acting out. I realize we get fed up. I realize our flesh wants to, to lash out. But somebody else's sin, somebody else's flesh never permits your flesh to act out. You're still accountable to Jesus. At our church here, Anonymous, we talk about just being with Jesus. You won't act out if you're hanging out with Jesus. So please understand that every time you act out, you're giving him permission to continue to act out. And you need to be different Love your husband. Be submissive to him unless he's asking you to do something that is ungodly. And pray for him. But remember that whatever he does doesn't give you the right to respond in kind. We never respond to flesh with our own flesh. You want peace in your home? That's how to do it. And I'll be praying for you. This kind of thing really and truly breaks my heart. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Well, here's a better one. This is also anonymous. I'm engaged to my fiancé and want to make sure we remain pure. How do I fight the temptations sexually? Well, you're already doing it. By wanting to remain pure. So how do you fight? You, you just protect yourself. You don't put yourself in compromising positions. You don't uh, steal away and be alone. with him. You don't say whether you're the man or the woman. If you're the man, it's your responsibility to present your wife holy and blameless. You're to wash her with the water of the word. And if you'll do that, then the Spirit of God, Jesus right there with you, and the Word of God working through you, the Holy Spirit will keep you away from that temptation. So that's the thing that's really important. Just You've got to love Jesus more than you love that, that opportunity to sin. And you're doing the right thing. You're headed in the right direction. Just stay on guard. You know when the temptations begin. Just be really, really careful. One other thought. I've never been a fan of long engagements for this very reason. Why do we want to give the enemy a chance to pound us? And so, um, if you get to the place, Paul says, it's better to marry than to burn with lust. So get married. Why wait? I know we have dreams of big weddings, but it's far more important to have a wedding that's pure. So if the temptation becomes too much, get married. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. I use it all the time here. It's a promise that whatever you're being tempted by, you can overcome 
It's a promise that has been given to us by the Lord. Thank you, Anonymous. And God bless you for wanting to remain pure. Hang in there. The Lord is pleased. Let's go to Reuben on line one. Reuben, thanks for calling. You're on the air. God bless you, Pastor Ron. I pray that you have a blessed day, sir. Thank you, Reuben. I'm struggling a little bit with super, super high mountain cedar. (laughs) Oh, that's not good. That's not good. Pastor Ron, I was wondering if you could help me with the scripture. Um, Over the weekend, a couple of people, we, we just got together and had like an impromptu Bible study, and we were just going through Bible verses and, you know, trying to tell each other what we thought of it. And I came across Psalms 56 and 8, and um, this is out of the NLT version. I don't know if it's proper to read out of the King James Version. I mean, uh, not to read out of the King James Version and read other versions, but this one says, You keep track of all my sorrows. You have collected all my tears in your bottle. You have recorded each one in your book. Now, of course, I think the King James says something a little bit different uh, with the language. But anyways, I was wondering, is he speaking to us? And if so, do you know why he keeps our tears in a bottle? And what is he going to do with those tears? Yeah, uh, great question, Ruben. Um, I, I love the fact that he, that he keeps them. Uh, now, I'm, I'm not certain that this isn't just poetic language, but I think what the psalmist is trying to say is that um, my tears have a purpose, and my tears are going to be wiped away. You know, we know for sure the Bible says every tear will be wiped away. So I don't think there's a literal bottle in heaven and our tears are being stored up. I think what he means is that our tears aren't going to go to waste. And, and the psalmist is simply saying, and I like what the NIV says, it says, record my lament, list my tears on your scroll. So the idea that the tears are in a bottle, I think, is just poetic license. And, of course, Psalms is a book of poems. And you, Reuben, as a worship person, uh, understand the, 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 the figurative language. Um, but what he's saying is, look, uh, my tears aren't going to be wasted. So I cry and I'm in pain and I, I know there's got to be um, 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 some challenges in my life. But you've got all of those challenges in your hand and uh, you're recording them for me. And I do believe, Reuben, that when we stand before the Lord, a lot of our uh, rewards that we receive from the Lord, the crowns uh, the, that we'll cast at Jesus' feet eventually, uh, are going to be for uh, how we endured those times when we're crying, those times when we're sad, our hearts are broken, and how we respond by faith to those times. So again, I don't think there's a literal bottle, but the tears are going to be demonstrated. When when we stand before the Lord, we're going to understand the value, the purpose of every tear. We're going to understand the goodness and the compassion of God um, and and that there was a purpose uh, in those tears, and none of them were wasted. So, hope that makes sense to you, Reuben. Three four zero ninety five eighty five for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Hank. He says, "I've always been an atheist, but now I'm questioning that. Good for you, Hank." He says, what steps must I take to believe and will God punish me for being an atheist? You know, Hank, you're, I don't know, you don't say anything about how old you are, how long this battle has been going on, but you're in the best place you've ever been in your life because the Holy Spirit has sort of been following you around and knocking on the door of your heart. And what he's saying to you is, you know the truth. You know that I've been here. The Lord told Paula before she was saved, I love you. I've always loved you. I always will love you. And right now, you're in that struggle. So it's really simple. What steps must you take? Just say to the Lord, God, please forgive me of my sins. Forgive me of my sins, O God. And help me to find out who you are. And to get to know you. And to trust who you are. And then the most important step, Hank, is to ask Jesus to be your personal Lord and Savior. 
The transaction happens. You ask him to come in because you believe by faith. Now, it's easy to believe. It's easy to believe. I did a message yesterday, Hank, where I said, um, nobody rejects Jesus Christ because they can't believe. They reject Jesus because they won't believe, and they won't believe because they don't want to stop sinning. So all you have to do is say, Lord, I've, I've, I've fought you my whole life, and now I'm done fighting. And I give up. I surrender. Jesus, you said you were God. You proved you were God. You died. You didn't stay dead. And now I want to serve you. And that's the only step you need to take. And this is going to be the best day of your life, Hank. Now, the, the thought that God will punish you for being an atheist, if God was going to punish you, he wouldn't have come alongside you in the person of the Holy Spirit to convict you of sin and of righteousness and judgment. He loves you, Hank. He's crazy about you. And all you have to do is turn to him and surrender. Hank, what I'd love you to do is call in one day or send in another email and let us know how you're doing, if there's anything that we can do to help you. I know there's going to be a lot of people praying for you. If there's anything that we can do to help you, believe me, we'll be there. God bless you. Thank you. Appreciate it very, very much. Let's go to Mark on line two. Mark, thanks for holding. You're on the air. Hello, Pastor Ron. Hi, Mark. I have a, yeah, I have a Christian brother-in-law uh, that uh, a host of physical problems some of them very severe that he might have to uh, walk away from his jobs and even be homebound, according to uh, doctors' reports earlier in his uh, last year. And he uh, said, right now, uh, Mark, uh, I just, I'm just praying for a miracle. God can intervene. But I'm encouraging uh, him to at least try to see a foot specialist among other professional doctors, saying that doc- God can work the doctors. Uh, he doesn't trust doctors at all. He doesn't think that's really God's way. He's been through a lot of uh, bad uh, diagnoses and, and just uh, ill treatments, according to his opinion. They have not helped him, but uh, he's praying for God's miracle. Uh, and also, what makes matters worse, uh, he is could be blocking uh, God's intervention for a miracle, either with or without a doctor, by not being involved in any kind of fellowship of believers. He's a, mm-hmm. they're a lone ranger person. He just had a bad experience in the past. I believe somebody burned him. He's neglected. Uh, he forsake the assembling of people. He's not involved in any Bible studies or a fellowship at all. He's just a lone ranger. Uh, that Mark, is- Mark, does he claim to be born again? Yes. Okay. I'm I'm always suspicious suspicious of people that say they're they're Christian and they have no desire for Christian fellowship. Uh, I can tell you he's probably not in the Word. Um, um, you know, if he if he if he's anti doctor, um, we need to remind him that two books of our Bible were written by a doctor. In fact, God so loved the Apostle Paul that he sent him Luke, the physician, uh, to be with him through the last part of his life as Paul was getting older and dealing with all kinds of physical afflictions. So, um, you know, almost always God works through doctors. Now, it doesn't mean that God does not still heal. There are times when he does. But that's typically not the response. God doesn't owe us. There's nothing in the atonement that, that demands that God has to heal us if we just believe. And when a, when a guy won't do anything for himself, when he won't be involved in the church, when he isn't serving the people of God, if you think about it, and it's just a, a human perspective, it's pretty nervy to ask God to do something for him. And so what, what, I would, what I would do if I was his friend, I would tell him, I would say, you know, what you need to do is jump in with both feet and serve the Lord. Jesus himself said, if you find your life, you'll lose it. But if you lose it for me, you'll find it. He wants to put himself in a place where the Lord can heal him, where the Lord can touch him, where the Lord can give him direction. Or in the absence of a physical healing where Jesus can say, it's okay, I'm with you. He told the Apostle Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. And he said that when he didn't heal the Apostle Paul from a physical affliction. 
So what I would suggest that you do as his friend, obviously you're praying for him, and I can hear your heart. However, he needs to understand that his responsibility is to do things God's way, not his way. And the fact that he might have been burned before uh, by a Christian or in a church experience, none of that matters. He's got to trust God. And if he'll do that, then he can put himself in the place where at least the Lord can minister to him. But when he's on his own, and I get this a lot, Mark, I get people that say, well, well, I can do this on my own. We can't do anything on our own. So you set an example for him. You keep telling him you need to be involved in a church. You need to surrender to the Lord every facet of your life, and especially as you're dealing with physical pain. You really need to get to that place where you know that you're completely dependent on Jesus Christ. The only way to do that is to come to God on His terms. And you quoted Hebrews 10.25, or not to forsake the assembly together of the saints. He is outside of the place where God can bless him even now. Hey, we've got 30 minutes left in the program, 340-9585. I'll be back in two minutes. Back to the Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the second half of our Monday program, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Mark, uh, I, I trust you're still listening. I know you're not on the line any longer, but... But during the break, I was just throwing up a flare prayer uh, for your friend. Uh, And and maybe this is the Holy Spirit. Maybe it's not. You can discern or you can decide prayerfully whether to pass this message to him. But but and, and I want to be clear. What I'm not saying is that your friend's physical condition is caused by sin. However, John chapter five, there was a man who was paralyzed for 38 years at the pool of Bethesda. And Jesus walked up to him and said, do you want to get well? Do you want to be well? And he had to answer that question. So your friend needs to answer that question. And later that day, Jesus had been separated from this guy. and He went out to find him. And he said to the man when he found him, he said, stop sinning or something worse will happen to you. Jesus healed him. Then he said, stop sinning or something worse will happen to you. And if the Spirit is speaking to my heart um, over the break, Mark, uh, as a friend, you can say, you know what, where's your heart with the Lord? What's going on in your life? People who are Christians, and, and I would explain it just that way, people who are Christians long to be in fellowship. And you hate the fellowship of the believers. You're resisting it. And yet you want God to intervene and heal you is there something going on in your life that, that, that renders God unable to bless you? Again, we're not guaranteed a healing, um, but, but with thanksgiving, we're to make our request known to the Lord. And your friend doesn't sound like he's grateful to the Lord at all. So, Mark, I hope that helps and you can discern whether or not that's of the Spirit of God or not. Here is a question. This one is from Linda. She says, what should be the most important element in choosing a church? There are so many different denominations that I'm lost. Isn't it true, Linda? There are a lot of different denominations and different ways of approaching church. The most important element is their treatment of the Word of God. Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 42, said the early church was devoted to the apostles' doctrine. We would say they were devoted to the Word of God, because that's what the apostles' doctrine was. So the most important element in choosing a church is how are they treating the Word? Are they giving little soft, encouraging sermons? Are they refusing to deal with sin? Are they giving you topical messages? Or are they teaching the Bible? Verse by verse, chapter by chapter. That's the most important, how they deal with the Word of God. 
Now, there are lots of other elements. Is it uh, a church where you can use the gifts that God has given you, um, uh, the fellowship that we also desperately need? So find a church that teaches the Bible. Now, every church is going to say we teach the Bible, but there's a big difference in talking about the Bible and actually teaching it. And what you need as a relatively new believer or or uh, an immature believer, and I don't mean that in a pejorative way, um, you need um, meat. You need to know what the Bible says. You need to get familiar with it. You need to be encouraged by your church to dig in and get in and read and then let the teaching of the Word sort of give you some strength as it relates to learning how to handle the Word of God. So that's by far the most important element. Um, Most of the denominations, you're not going to get the Bible taught. So just find a Bible teaching church. There's a bunch of us out there. We actually have uh, seven Calvary chapels in the greater San Antonio area. Um, and, and any one of those churches would be uh, a church that just teaches through the Bible uh, and a good place to begin. So if you personal preference, a smaller church, a bigger church, whatever is on your heart, uh, you're going to be able to find a church that teaches the word. And that's what you need. So, Linda, I hope that helps you. Thank you very, very much. Good luck in your search for a church. Here's an interesting one. Edward says, is it okay to attend more than one church? Edward, I would ask, I mean, it's okay, but why would you want to? Why would you want to? You know, a church is to be a family. You've got one blood family, and typically we hang around with our blood family. We don't go looking for other families. Uh, And and a church needs to be a place where you serve. A church needs to be a place where you are accountable uh, to the leadership of that church, and you're accountable to other believers in the church. It's a place where you use the gifts that God has given you to serve that church. And uh, it, it needs to be a commitment. It needs to be a commitment. Now, typically, Edward, and I'm not saying this is the case for you, but usually when I see people that are going to different churches, it's because they don't want to be under the authority of any particular church. And, and that's really not a healthy place to be, spiritually speaking. So is it okay? Everything's okay, but but... Why would you want to attend more than one church? Pray, ask the Lord which church he's chosen for you, and then become an active, vibrant participant in the mission that God has given that church. I think one of the things that people don't understand, Edward, is that God has these churches all over. There's thousands and thousands of them, but each one has a different mission. Our mission is way different than most churches. And the people that God leads here, he wants them to get involved in supporting the mission with their time, with their talent, with their treasure. And and when when our, our focus is split between two churches, we gotta we got to wonder why. So um, that's a matter for you for prayer. Yeah, we're permitted to do it. Uh, Paul says um, we're permitted to do all things, but not all things are beneficial. I just don't see any value other than occasionally going and hearing a different voice. I don't see any value in in going to more than one church. Be a part of a local body. Serve that body. Be a blessing to the people in that body. We don't go to church to get blessed, but to be a blessing to others. And when we really understand that, well, well that's when we'll find ourselves being blessed because, well, that's what God promises to do. So I hope that makes sense. Thank you very, very much. This one? Yeah. Uh, Anonymous says, what is the main reason that Christians should go to church? Well, we've been kind of talking about that in in the answers to the questions. Uh, Here's the main reason. God said. That's the most important thing that we, if we need any reason other than God said, Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey me. That's the main reason that we go to church. But there's a lot of blessings when we go to church, when we're actively involved in the fellowship. So it's important that we are part of a local body. I know we would rather many times just um, sleep in, watch online. But remember, and I tell my pastors this, if you want God to use you, you've got to be where God's people are. It's that simple. You can't do your own thing. You've got to 
be where the people are. And that's our commitment to the people here at Calvary Chapel. And, you know, there's a lot of ministry that goes on in, in, in churches, in our church. Um, and you don't want to miss. You don't want to miss. Honestly, and I, I say this proudly in a godly way, but um, our people here, by and large, you hear multiple services every Sunday. The majority of people are here multiple services because they're serving in one, they're being taught in another. Uh, we have many, many people who are here um, from first service through third service. They're serving with their families. And these are the families that are growing together in the grace and knowledge of who God is and in the knowledge of His will for their lives. So, again, the main reason, Anonymous, is that Jesus said to go. He said it in His Word. And we shouldn't need any reason other than that. We trust by faith that He tells us these things because he knows what's best for us, and he wants what's best for us. Hope that makes sense to you. It's important. Dana wants to know, don't you think it is unfair for God to punish people for Adam and Eve's sin? Dana, I don't really understand your question. And, and I, You and I, we will never stand before God and give account for anything Adam or Eve did. That's why your question doesn't make any sense. God is never going to say, well, well, um, you know, um, Adam did this or Eve did this. Um, I'll not be punished for anything they did. Now, unfortunately, and i got to be honest, Dana, um, I've been done a lot of stuff that I'm going to stand before God and give account for, you know. i got my own things that I'm responsible for and accountable for. So what Adam and Eve did has nothing to do with the choices I make every single day. Now, if what you're referring to, as I suspect, is the doctrine of original sin, yes, Adam is our federal head. He is the first human. God made Adam from nothing, and he said that it's very, very good. Ephesians 2.10 says, in fact, that man was the best thing he did, and Adam means man or mankind. But as our federal head the first Adam, his sin nature was passed through us. That's what happens. The man passes on his seed, and we inherited his sin nature. So we have a proclivity to sin. But we also, especially as believers, and Dana, I'm going to assume, because you're listening to this program, that you're a believer. As believers, we don't have to sin when we're tempted. We can say no. We're more than conquerors through him who loved us. If God is for us, who can be against us? Uh, no temptation has seized you except that which is common to man. And God is faithful. He won't let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. So the whole idea is, is when I'm tempted to sin, I make a choice either to honor the Lord and say no to sin and yes to him, or I make a decision to forget him, at least momentarily, and indulge my flesh. Those are the sins that God has to punish the world for. So Adam's sin, Eve's sin, has nothing to do with you or me. It's just that the sin nature we inherited is inescapable. But remember, God is fair, God is just, and he's only going to hold you accountable for what you do. And I think it's kind of lazy, Dana, and I, again, I don't know you, so this isn't to be taken personally. But it's kind of lazy to say, well, you know, if Adam and Eve sinned and we're going to keep sinning, it's their fault, so I'm just going to give in to the sin. Uh, that That's a, a really difficult, difficult position to take. You're never going to be able to explain that to God. So I hope that makes sense. Let's go to James from Belmont, Texas. James, thanks for holding. You're on the air. Uh, hey, Pastor. It's, uh, it's good to hear your voice again. You well, too, actually, James. I hear your voice a lot more than I actually, you know, like on the phone. Um, <laughs> I just got back in country again just uh, uh, two or three weeks ago. Um, I had a question, um, and I'm I'm parked over on the side of the road, so I'm sitting here trying to thumb through. On Acts chapter 2, when Peter was addressing the crowd, you know, he he commented that this is what was spoken of the prophet Joel, and then he uh, quotes 
um, the prophet Joel. Uh, but he kind of goes past where I thought he would have stopped. And um, uh, he talks about, I will show the wonders in the heaven above and the signs on the earth below, uh, blood, fire, and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness, the moon to blood, before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. Um, I understand that, but uh, I see that as still being future. Uh, now, at the time when Peter was quoting Joel, um, it, it, it explained a lot about what the people were seeing, you know, saying, oh, you know, these people are drunk, you know, and it's like, well, no, it's actually like early in the morning. This is just what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And so he explains that about um, a little bit maybe about the tongues, definitely about the visions, uh, the dreaming of the dreams and uh, the spirit being poured out. But you remember whenever, well, not personally, of course, I mean, I'm, I might be that old, but not you. Uh, <laughs> but whenever Jesus uh, uh, was talking in the synagogue and uh, and then he closed the scroll of Isaiah before finishing the verse, mm -hmm. um, I was always taught that that was because that part was still future. And so I guess the part that puzzles me is I'm trying to kind of compare this a little bit to when Jesus was talking in the synagogue and quoting Isaiah. I'm just thinking that uh, that Peter completed the verse where I, I would have thought he would have stopped. But then also in his heart, he later talks about um, how they're looking forward, I believe, to the... Um, uh, the renewing of the earth and the kingdom that's coming. And so in his heart, he saw this as like being uh, imminent. I mean, it's like it's going to happen. The king is here. Uh, you thought you killed him, but you didn't. He's alive, and the king is going to come, and, and, uh, and we're going to have our kingdom here on earth with Jesus Christ uh, sitting at the throne. Um, just what were your feelings about him uh, as far as completing that verse in Joel. Um, James, a couple of things. You're very discerning about the Isaiah 61 passage when Jesus stopped reading because what he eliminated, he said, uh, that was the day of the Lord's vengeance. He didn't go all the way down, Jesus didn't, to the, to the end of time and space, to into the Great Tribulation, when that day of God's vengeance was going to be fulfilled. So when he talked about the, the, the Lord's favor, and he says, today in your hearing, this scripture is fulfilled, um, he's just saying that, that this is the way God is dealing with us now. Jesus would, would also say, I didn't come to judge, um, um, but, but to save. And, and so that's why he was, uh, why he stopped reading in the middle of that verse. Now, Peter in Acts chapter 2 is explaining in a very Jewish way. One of the great things about Peter, people, people often ask, well, why did God use Peter? And, and in the book of Acts, we see why God used Peter. Even though Peter denied the Lord, and we might think, well, God would punish him or God wouldn't use him to this degree. Every time in the book of Acts, Peter opens his mouth, it's the word coming out. So he had the word in his heart, and God could use him to do that. So what Peter is telling him is just by way of explanation, what you see, these people aren't drunk, but what you see, and, and I'm going to use New Testament language, is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has made this glorious entrance into the world. And then he says, but this isn't something that you... That, that should surprise you because it was prophesied by the prophet Joel. Now, when he goes to the end, um, he says, the sun, and this is verse 20, he says, the sun will be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. The glorious day of the Lord, of course, is always a reference to Jesus coming back in uh, Revelation chapter 19. And he's just saying to Jews, he's saying that, that, this scripture is being fulfilled, but it looks forward to a day when judgment is going to be 
uh, had. And then we go to the next verse, verse 21, and this is the impetus to his great message in Acts chapter 2. Uh, verse 21 says, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Jews had no understanding of being saved. They thought they were saved by virtue of being descendants of Abraham, by virtue of having the law. They thought that was enough. And Peter simply saying, judgment is coming. It's in the future. But right now, today is the day of salvation. So call on the name of the Lord and you'll be saved. So he wasn't taking the same approach Jesus was. He was simply explaining the phenomena. And in just this short few verses, at the same time, he's saying, look, salvation's available, but if you don't get saved, then the sun will be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And Jews understood that that day meant that that day the Christ returns. Good question, James, and good discernment on the Isaiah 61 passage for um, for the Lord. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. I think we've still got time for another question. Uh, hi, Pastor Ron. This is anonymous. Please share your thoughts on surrogacy. Thank you. Um, you know, I'm I'm certainly not uh, an expert on these things. I I don't think there is anything sinful about it. I don't think there is anything improper about it. Uh, if you uh, are a woman who is able to have children. Um, you know, we've got so many babies uh, here at the church. We've got some ladies who just seem to pop them out. It's no problem at all. And we see others who struggle a great deal. We have um, many women, several women that I can think of off the top of my head, who've really struggled with miscarriages. And, and God's put this desire in their heart to be a mother. And I think um, using the egg of the mother and the sperm of the father, and, and another woman, a healthy woman who's able to have children carrying that baby, is an act of love. I believe it's a gift. So certainly I don't think there's anything wrong with it at all. If you are the the, the one who wants to be a mother and you're having a hard time uh, finding a surrogate, it can be a little bit tricky, and I think it would have to be bathed in tons and tons of prayer because there are are are, are many difficulties that arise. But I think as um, you really seek the Lord, I think he'll probably give you some direction and protect you. So I don't think there's anything at all wrong with it. I just think it's a wonderful way to be a blessing to someone else. And I, again, admittedly, that is not an area of expertise that I have, but I just think that's the Lord. We have in our church um, um, a, a foster care ministry that turns into adoption. We have a lot of families that have adopted these foster kids and their lives have been so enriched and the lives of the children just changed. So um, God works in all kinds of ways and I think surrogacy would be one of those ways. Again, I don't think there's any problem at all with it. Okay, I think we got time for maybe one more question. Okay, this is a good one to take. This is from Gloria. She says, I'm told I need to deconstruct my faith, questioning everything I've ever been taught. How can I do that, and how important is it? Gloria, the most important thing for you is to run as far away from the people telling you this as fast as you can. Gloria, when people talk, and this is a social media-created thing, uh, deconstructing my faith. How do I know that what I was taught was true? Well, if they would dig into the Word of God, they would know that it's true. These are people that are trying to find a way to convince themselves that they're Christians and continue to sin. And make no mistake, everybody deconstructing their faith is trying to find loopholes in the Bible that permits them to sin. So I can do this, I can go out and drink, I can go out and party. God wants me to be happy. And in, in order to do that, we got to instinctively tear down that which we know and have always known to be true. And here's the thing that we all need to remember, Gloria. If what you believed was true when you believed it, whether it was two weeks ago, two years ago, or 22 years ago, if it was true, then it is still true now. And God doesn't change. The culture around us changes. And the way people 
placate themselves, well, I can do what I want to do and still go to heaven. They, they just convince themselves that they can make Jesus into who they want him to be. And make no mistake, Gloria, that's what deconstructing faith really is all about. It's turning Jesus. It's creating him in our image instead of remembering that we were created in his image. And it's very important that you hold on to the faith. Paul writes it this way, once and for all delivered to the saints. So the faith of 2,000 years ago, from Acts chapter 2 to this very day, that faith is still the faith. Now, humans have messed it up. Churches have blown it. But the faith itself has never changed. It's once forever delivered to the saints. So run away from those people. Deconstructing your faith is not growing in the Lord. It is just the opposite. Get into your word and dig in with all of your heart and let the Holy Spirit lead you in this pursuit of getting closer to the Lord and finding out more about him. We're always told to grow in the knowledge of God and in the knowledge of his will. But the only way we do that is hold on to that faith that was once and for all delivered. Gloria, God bless you. Be strong. Find new friends. Hey, thanks for tuning in. You've been listening to the Day Air Toothian Word to Stand Up for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. Lord willing, I'll be back tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630 The Word. We'll see you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.